Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, James Copestake, University of Bath Professor of International Development, will highlight the growing business orientation of aid and explore scope for being more transparent about its impact. How best to um, use an inaugural lecture? Well, I've had a couple of years to think about this since I got promoted, and my first idea was to produce a gripping and joined-up narrative of my research highlights to date, but um, I couldn't find one. Um, And uh, also, that would be a bit backward-looking. And so instead, I've decided to treat this like any other lecture, the many I've given since I've uh, been here. And, uh, and that means it may not be quite as polished as I'd like it to be, but I hope it will be, as Jane says, a celebration of what uh, being here is all about, which is coming up with a few ideas, kicking them around, trying to sort them out, and uh, critically evaluating whether they're useful or not. Um, as usual, I'm probably going to have to say, have more to say um, than I've got time, and so I may not take many questions at the end, uh, but... Uh, the, uh, the ideas I'm going to be presenting are new. They haven't been tried out before, or some of them, anyway. And so I do really want feedback, uh, which means that we have a summary on the Centre for Development Studies website. We have a blog all ready to go, so that uh, if you have outstanding questions, you can uh, put them there or make comments. And uh, we're now live on Twitter as well. So... Uh, lots of opportunities, I hope, for feedback. And Fiona at the front there as well um, has a list. If you want a copy of this lecture, as and when it finally gets written up, and of the summary, uh, approach uh, Fiona afterwards. Uh, we're going to have time and something to uh, drink and eat outside, and everybody's welcome to that. And so do also make the most of that time to um, talk to all the, I will assure you, very interesting people in this room, quite apart from me. Right, okay, so what am I going to say? Uh, My number one goal... Is that light enough? Can people see that? Turn them down a bit more, shall I? A bit more intimate. Okay. Um, My number one goal uh, this evening is to argue for moving beyond grand generalisations about aid. Aid was never simple but it seems to become ever more complex as agencies, financing mechanisms and acronyms proliferate. Public understanding struggles to keep up, with debate often pitched at a depressingly bland level. Is aid working? Well, the correct answer is it all depends. More interesting questions then abound, including what sort of aid works best, when and why, and is the mix of different forms of aid right in different places? Not everyone is receptive to such detail. Our own problems naturally loom large over those of distant strangers. But while aid is rarely, if ever, the main driver of development, positive or negative, I do think its scale and quality really matters. And plenty of people are interested, as well as better able, I think, to distinguish between different forms of aid than they do now. Most of us routinely choose between thousands of supermarket products, too many perhaps. When John Heinz chose the number 57 to market his products in 1896, I wonder if he imagined that a century later there would be more than 5,700 products being marketed under the same brand. In contrast, how many different forms of aid can you list? And how easy do you find it to decide which one is working better and which one less well? 
Travelling through Ethiopia not long ago, um, I passed the time by taking these pictures along the road as we were driving up the Rift Valley. So we've got a European Union um, seed development project. We've got a South Korean model village. We've got a USAID-sponsored dairy. And we've got an Indo-Ethiopian sugar factory. And that's a small sample of the signs I took in a fairly small, short space. Such advertising may be viewed both as a modest step towards greater aid transparency and as more than just symbolic of the way external aid undermines country ownership of its own development, even if some of the signs do carry the Ethiopian flag. Well, two of them do, yeah. In her celebrated book, No Logo, Naomi Klein railed against branding as another example of the rise of corporate power and the privatisation of public space. It's also tainted by association with excessive consumerism. But branding can also help to overcome information overload, signal quality, enable us to differentiate between products and put corporate reputations on the line. Much depends on what independent evidence is available through which we as consumers can make informed judgments about which brands we like and why. So here's another brand. Take the case of UK aid from, um, uh, official aid from the UK. I started my career, uh, like one or two others in this room, um, with the Overseas Development Administration, now the Department for International Development. Note the lack of any uh, reference in that title to the origin, the British origin of the aid. In 2009, this changed with the introduction of the brand UK Aid. And um, last year, the decision was made to add the Union Jack and the, um, to emulate US Aid with the, from the American, sorry, from the British people um, as a tagline. The UK brand, um, Aid brand can be compared with that of a supermarket. It's offering directly managed own label products alongside a range of brands supplied by other agencies. So if we take the case of aid to African agriculture, the first and perhaps surprising fact is that direct UK aid for this through bilateral programmes is tiny, no more than 1% of the British bilateral aid programme. In addition, maybe twice as much um, is rooted through uh, multilateral uh, agencies and specialised um, funds. Uh, some of these, um, the brands of these, I've put on the slide the International Fund for Agricultural Development being an example. Uh, I couldn't resist adding a fictional acronym to the list, and I wonder if you can spot it. Anybody? You aid experts? You recognise all those brands? Okay, well, it's A-A-A-A-A-A. It would be brilliant in the A to Z if you were. Um, and that stands for African Agriculture Aid Acronyms Anonymous. Okay. Um, there is also scope for more... Um, okay. Uh, more seriously, this alphabet soup conceals more than it reveals, including the very large number of private companies and consultancies working behind the scenes. So what can we do to improve understanding of aid in its many forms? Much work is going on to improve aid statistics, um, so it's in clearer who gives who what to whom. Development initiatives, now based in Bristol are a global leader in such work, and provided the statistics that I've um, just quoted on aid to British, uh, British aid to agriculture. There's also scope for more independent and consumer watchdog-style assessment of the quality of different brands. Why the UK aid supermarket, for example, uh, funds IFAD, but not the ILO. 
Uh, we've got a parliamentary group on international debate and development, which is also important. And um, heavyweight, uh, we now have the heavyweight um, independent commission for aid impact. As shall become evident, universities as well, including this one, also get roped into evaluating aid programs, often alongside NGOs and consultancies. <clears throat> While monitoring um, capacity is important, I think we also need to be clear about how we talk about aid, being more scrupulous about whether we're referring to specific brands and also specific financing mechanisms, program aid, project aid, challenge funds, guaranteed funds, technical assistance, and so on. Even more fundamentally, I'm going to argue that we need to make new distinctions to help us think more clearly about the deeper characteristics that influence aid impact. And to be more specific, I'm going to argue for making a stronger distinction between two dimensions by which aid can be assessed, social impact and financial sustainability. Social impact arises from how much it adds to the well-being of intended beneficiaries or end users. Financial sustainability is about the extent to which partners in aid delivery recover some of the money by charging users for end services they're providing, thereby reducing future aid dependence. This then leads to a distinction between two very different kinds of aid, which I'm going to label development assistance and development finance. And the first part of my argument is going to be setting that out um, more formally and theoretically. I'm then going to share a real case study, um, uh, an Ethiopian case study, to test out that framework, and then I'm going to discuss the wider implications. So that's what you've got to look forward to. <coughs> First, um, I want to uh, set out the context in which I've developed this, this argument, which I'm trying out on you. Uh, and that's important because I've already said that... Um, I think one of the problems we have with aid at the moment is overgeneralization. So I need to be specific myself. And I'm going to be specific in three ways. I'm going to talk mostly about agriculture and food security. I'm going to talk mostly about non-government or NGO aid to, um, uh, uh, for, for, for those goals. And I'm mostly going to talk about Ethiopia. And let me explain. It'll take five minutes, but I think it's important. Let me explain that choice of context and, and background. First, why food security? Prior to the global food spike um, in 2007, donors were relatively complacent about national food security issues across much of Africa, principally because the cost of importing grain from the world market was so low. One consequence of this is that rapidly growing urban demand for food across the continent has primarily been met through imports from outside. In the 20 years from 1990, net cost of food staple imports into sub-Saharan Africa rose six times to six billion US dollars. This alarming increase in Africa's reliance on food imports is financially burdensome and risky. It also represents a failure to realize the undoubted potential to produce and, f and, and trade far more food internally, and in so doing to create employment for a still fast-growing population. While a long-term reduction in the number of people who live in rural areas and rely on agriculture in Africa is, I agree, inevitable and desirable, the depth, dynamics and welfare impact of that transition is not. And one reason for this is that the capacity of smallholder farmers to thrive or survive depends in part on their uncertain access to seeds, inputs, technical knowledge, financial services and produce markets. 
Another way of saying the same thing is that we haven't quite finished yet with the classic agrarian question. How to manage structural economic change and from rural to urban dominated societies in a way that minimises inequality. Destitution, social disruption and political unrest. Perhaps it's more accurate to say that the agrarian question hasn't quite finished with us. So why Ethiopia? While I could refer to many other countries, I've chosen to talk about Ethiopia for two main reasons. The first is that since the famine of 1984, and as a result of Band-Aid, Comic Relief, Live Aid, public understanding of aid and Ethiopia has become powerfully connected. In his page-turning book, Foreigners and Famines, Peter Gill warns of the damaging and one-dimensional image of the Western world has of Ethiopia, an image created and sustained by the media and by aid agencies, unchanged in a quarter of a century. Without underestimating the problems they face, many Ethiopians are naturally very keen to demonstrate that this branding is out of date. Like Bangladesh before it, Ethiopia has also emerged as something of a test case for the development industry particularly for the argument put forward forcibly by Geoffrey Sachs and echoed in Make Poverty History, that one route to sustainable poverty reduction is a big push or a surge in external aid. Second, while poverty incidence in Ethiopia has been falling steadily in the last decade, 44% of children remain stunted, life expectancy is still below 60, 30% of people still fall below the extreme poverty line of, listen carefully, US $220 per year. While Ethiopia's other sources of external finance are growing, foreign investment, remittances, these are still much smaller than current official aid receipts of around $3.5 billion US dollars a year, amounting to 10% of national income. Ethiopia is the world's third largest aid recipient after Iraq and Afghanistan. Agriculture also still makes up half its gross domestic product and remains the main source of income for 85% of the population. Yet at the same time, Ethiopia is one of the three or four fastest growing countries in the world. It's officially sustained 10% per annum growth of GDP for a decade, which is um, something to think about if you live in Europe. And it also, um, well, in short, it remains a major test case for aid and one that depends on an unfinished agricultural transformation. So... Uh, and why NGOs? Okay, um, NGOs are relatively small movers of development aid, but it can be argued they're interesting bellwethers of wider changes taking place in the industry, perennially soul-searching about their identity, legitimacy, and financial viability. One recent trend, for example, has been a wave of consolidation of global brands. Oxfam recently merged five previously distinct country programs in Ethiopia into one, while Save the Children did the same for seven. However, the main reason that I'm focusing on NGOs is a personal one. And I'm going to focus particularly on the neglected tale of smaller NGOs, particularly those specialised in agriculture and rural development. 25 years ago, having just handed in my PhD, um, I took a job with a small NGO as its first full-time uh, employee called Harvest Help as its first project officer. Um, I'm going to talk about partners later, and, and in that same week, I also entered into a long-term commitment with a partner, um, which was probably a better decision, um, but there's another story, so I won't go there. Um, um, with Harvest Help, I had the opportunity to spend three years, mostly in Zambia, um, and uh, 
trying to promote rural development using other people's money. Uh, and trying to promote self-reliance with other people's money. Harvest Help was one of many institutional responses to the Ethiopian famine of 1984 that sought to demonstrate the potential of Africa to be more self-sufficient in food. I didn't find it that easy to work out how to use other people's money to promote self-reliance, and I've puzzled over that same conundrum in various ways since. In, 19, in 2008, Harvest Help merged with an Irish NGO and uh, rebranded itself Self-Help Africa. This has an annual budget of $8 million a year, working in eight countries. And I recently rejoined its program advisory committee, and this prompted me to revisit these issues, as well as providing raw material for this lecture. So a slightly long introduction, but um, important context. And I'm now going to go on and present my model. So hang on in there. Um, with this context in mind, let me now turn to the way we think about aid. In order to introduce my argument as clearly possible, I'm going to use a stripped-down version of an aid chain that links together just three stakeholders, a donor, a partner, and a single undifferentiated group of end-users. Two versions of the model are shown on this slide. In both versions, arrows from left to right depict the flow of aid resources. But in version A, there's a reverse arrow um, from end-users back to the partner to indicate that they make some payment for the money, goods, and services they receive. This suggests potential for the partner to become at least partially financially independent from the donor over time. Such payments are also an important, if not sufficient, form of feedback to the partner that they're indeed providing end users with something they value. In the case of version B, in contrast, the partner must persuade someone else, usually local taxpayers, to fund them if they're not to go out of business when the aid runs out. Now, there are many ways in which I could um, embellish this diagram, and I'll introduce a more complex version later when we turn to a real example. But before that, I think it's useful to persist with a very simple three-party model in order to elaborate on how we can assess these, um, assess these core aid relationships. And to do this, I'm going to use some graphical analysis, um, but as I say, please do stick with me, because this is the core of the argument. As um, some of you know, there's always at least one graph in my lectures. Okay, so here it is. What this graph does is enable us to map any aid activity in two dimensions. Hence, it offers one way to classify different kinds of aid. The aid activities can be large or small, heavily conditional or open-ended, a single payment or a long-term commitment to set up a new partner, for example. But simplicity, let's refer to them as time-bound projects. The x-axis represents the effect of the project on the financial sustainability of the partner agency. Measuring this is largely an accounting task, though it is an incremental effect of the project that we're interested in, not the overall business performance of the partner. I've drawn a line called the commercial frontier to show where money recovered from end users as a result of the project matches what could be earned instead by investing the aid money uh, safely in the bank. Uh, well, maybe safely in the bank. Um, this aid recovery may happen with a lag, and so strictly we should refer to the net present value of the aid recovered. Some of the money recovered may also be returned from the partner to the donor, but for present purposes we can keep it simple and assume it all stays with the partner. Okay, so that's our x-axis, financial sustainability. Our y-axis I've labelled social impact, and this can be defined as, uh, and estimated in different ways, but for this, um, purposes of this argument I'm going to think of it as benefits to end users 
arising from the project expressed as a percentage of the project cost to the donor. For example, giving the entire budget directly to end users, as some Americans are now doing to people in Malawi on their, on their mobile phones by being given a SIM card, uh, giving the money direct and at, at zero cost um, to end users um, would result in a 100% um, social impact. That's, if you like, our, our benchmark. This may be increased if the donor succeeds in turning money into something even more valuable, like improved education, but is reduced by partner transactions costs and administration costs. And again, we should really measure that as net present value to end users. Of course, in an ideal world, where do we want to be? We want to be in the top right-hand corner of the diagram, delivering high social impact with financial sustainability yeah. in relation to our budget of 100%. Yeah. In practice, of course, we face a trade-off determined by the range of age technology, the range of age technology available at any time. And this is shown on the diagram as a performance possibility frontier, which I've just drawn on arbitrarily, above which it is by definition impossible to operate. But it is possible to operate below it, and this may not be efficient for two reasons. It may not be inefficient. First, because aid projects are not perfect substitutes for each other, and it may not be possible to allocate all money to cutting-edge aid on the PPF. And second, because outcomes are uncertain, so a mixed portfolio may be safer. Within the constraints in aid technology prevented by the PPF, we can distinguish two extreme types of aid. First, there's development assistance, B, in the top left, this often does well on social impact, but poorly on financial sustainability. In other words, aid has to keep flowing from the donor to sustain the benefits to the end users. Conditional cash transfers are a fashionable example of this, underpinned by the just-give-them-the-money line of criticism of more heavily managed aid. Development finance, A, I'm going to define as... Um, being down in the bottom right-hand quadrant. In contrast, this allows partners to recover more money. Indeed, it may be profitable, but with le less benefit to end users. Microfinance is an example of this, somewhat less fashionable now than it was a few years ago. And if we've got time, I'm going to talk a little bit about interesting intermediate possibilities, C. Okay. Let me now talk about uh, each of those types of aid in turn. Development finance. First consider um, two possible projects. A1 is the dream option, beloved of business at the bottom of the pyramid um, and philanthro-capitalists, um, that combines positive social impact with being above the commercial frontier. In contrast, A2 reminds us that overzealous or unscrupulous pursuit of financial sustainability can also lead to doing end-users harm, aid in support of business models that entrap contract farmers or aid for self-serving loan sharks in dressed up as microfinance institutions, for example. Okay. What about examples of development finance? And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on development finance because I'm going to argue that that's what's becoming more and more important in the aid world and the public doesn't realise. Okay. First, I've mentioned microfinance and I can't um, not mention it given um, my career. 
Um, first form of aid or first form of development finance is smart subsidies to promote microfinance. And I could spend a lot of time talking about that. And it would be particularly nice to tell the story of microfinance in Ethiopia, where um, partly funded by IFAD, there's a very interesting hare and tortoise race going on um, in which credit-led, commercially-oriented microcredit institutions are growing incredibly fast, whereas the poor old savings and credit co-op system in rural areas um, is stuck behind, partially because of government interest rate controls. But that's another story. I'm going to move on, um, second, to public-private partnerships as a vehicle for what um, Paul Collier uh, at the University of Oxford calls pioneering investment in small, isolated economies, like Ethiopia. Small, 85 million, isolated, second biggest country in Africa. Never mind. Small, isolated economies. We know what he means. If the global economy is the centre of your world, Ethiopia is small and isolated. Yeah? Okay. Um, his argument, in brief, is that he accepts that PPPs, public-private partnerships, can encourage the first mover investment, this is a slightly complicated bit, in empty and untested local market niches, helping the economy to break out of a poverty trap arising from gaps in the range of goods and services that are locally available and affordable. This deficiency, the exact opposite of cluster or agglomeration effects in a growth pole, arises from a combination of the high cost of importing globally mass-produced goods and limited scope to realise within-country economies of scale, plus, of course, uncertainty over government policy and governance. In Ethiopia, a very interesting public sector champion of this kind of development finance, public-private partnerships, um, to unlock the trap is the Agricultural Transformation Agency, itself set up, interestingly enough, with aid money from Bill and Melinda Gates to encourage foreign-trained Ethiopians to go and work back in their own country um, of origin. Okay, a third kind of development finance. Are, oh, sorry, I jumped too quickly. Back again. Um, are enterprise development challenge funds. These are mechanisms used widely in the aid industry, particularly by DFID. The donor issues an open call for potential partners, inviting them to pitch, Dragon's Den style, for money to subsidise an investment, too risky or marginal, to justify financing commercially, but with potential to contribute to wider social goals, such as poverty reduction, small farmer linkages, or financial inclusion. So to just give one example, from 2009, DFID have had the Food Retail Industry Challenge Fund, which has provided Dragon's Den-style matching funds for British companies, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Superflora, Nando's, Taylors of Harrogate, to strengthen their links with African smallholders. And that's one of a number of examples. And Jane mentioned that with Triple Line Consultant, we're now entering into some action research to look at how challenge funds of this kind are evaluated as part of the British Aid programme. And I should mention that the action research project we're just starting with them is a knowledge transfer project, a KTP, which is itself a UK government-funded um, and run challenge fund. Uh, which Bath has a very strong association with. Okay, a few issues linked to development finance. Firstly, we've got input additionality. How do we avoid crowding out purely commercial finance? If we're over that commercial frontier, is there any need for aid at all? Risk and uncertainty often explain why there may be, 
but still, it's hard to prove. Social impact. Any challenge fund manager worth their salt will tell you how many jobs their challenge fund has created. And Martin's smiling there because he's been evaluating one not long ago. Um, but can they really justify the assertion that those jobs wouldn't have been created anyway? That's much more difficult. Third, pro-market state activism. While the main disincentive to business investment is uncertainty over local government policy, then there's a case for donors addressing this directly through policy engagement, rather than seeking to offset them with subsidised finance. This raises the very contentious issue of how far donors can legitimately go in using their money to influence public policy in independent sovereign states. My colleague um, Susan Johnson and I and Richard Williams uh, have recently completed another KTP with Oxford Policy Management in, um, in Oxford, funnily enough, um, funded through another uh, KTP on this, this problem, on the wickedly complex problem of how they, as consultants, acquire and apply the understanding of local politics they need to complement their technical expertise as consultants. And uh, an output from that is posted on their website today. Uh, fourth point about development finance uh, and, uh, is that, is this just a case of neoliberal excess? Yeah? It's the extent to which the UK aid programme has shifted towards development finance and private enterprise development, um, uh, something we're happy with. Certainly started under Labour, it's accelerated under the coalition government. And I think it would be a surprise to many people um, in the public. Some actors, war on want, for example, with a very good report that came out called The Hunger Game, uh, more than hinted a whiff of conspiracy about this. Aid still serving the interests of UK capital and our own very respectable brand of crony capitalism to boot. Uh, Diffid would, I'm sure, reply that engaging with private business remains firmly a means to the ends of sustainable poverty reduction and often a very effective one, which takes us neatly back to the issue of quality and accessibility of evidence of aid performance. Okay, development finance. And I'm going much more slowly than I thought, funnily enough. You might not believe it. Um, <laughs> development assistance. Okay, now let's switch to the top left of the diagram. Uh, and again, I've shown you two points. Um, B1 might be a cash transfer project that moves money as cheaply as possible, though with some costs, to end users. B2 might represent in-kind assistance, such as aid for improved basic education that achieves a social impact greater than 100%. The location of B2 along the PPF, it's not on the y-axis, indicates some possibility of budget recovery. In contrast, you'll note BB1 is below the PPF, which indicates it delivers a net present value um, lower than, than obviously than B2. B2. may still be worth doing, um, and one reason is that different projects may be complementary to each other. An education project working on the supply side in tandem with a cash transfer conditional on school attendance working on the demand side, for example. Okay, so development assistance, that's my second category. And I'm just going to give one example here, but it's a really important one. And it's based on what's called the simplistic sum. How much money would it cost to eliminate poverty in Ethiopia? Yeah? The answer depends, of course, critically on how miserly your poverty line is. Yeah? I'm using the official Ethiopian one here, which converts into, as I said, 220 US dollars per year. Yeah? 
this is a pretty tough line. Yeah? However, um, it's, uh, I note it's one twentieth what uh, Ian Duncan Smith was recently challenged to live off in the UK. In 2011, approximately 25 million Ethiopians lived below that line and did so by average 25%. From these statistics, it's a simple piece of arithmetic to calculate that to eliminate extreme, very extreme, I'll grant you that, poverty in Ethiopia, we need one and a half US dollars, billion US dollars a year, or one billion pounds. We'd obviously need it every year because it would be a recurrent cost because it's development assistance. And that would actually only require require $25 a year in extra tax from non-poor Ethiopians. So why doesn't it happen? Well, the answer is it is. The government and donor-funded productive safety net program in Ethiopia is the largest development assistance program in Africa, I think, um, which alongside its sister emergency programs reaches more than 10 million people a year. The existence of these programs goes some way to explaining why famine in Ethiopia has not hit the headlines since 1984, though Peter Gill will suggest that 2008 came very close. Uh, The operation of PSNP and similar forms of social assistance obviously raises very tricky issues, some of which require substantial modification to the simplistic sum presented here. For example, there's targeting costs, there's leakages, etc., etc., in kind, in cash... Um, critically, we've got, um, we're going to expect behavioural responses in terms of people's work, coping strategies, fertility rates and so on. And perhaps the most important question is how big should the transfers be? Hence, what opportunity cost in terms of money not available for roads, health, education and so on. I haven't obviously got time to go into all those questions, but I do note that my department in Bath, the Department of Social and Policy Sciences, is deeply immersed in these questions. Okay, next. Intermediate options. I'm going to have to skip because I'm running out of time. But just to note very quickly that intermediate options can comprise a mixed portfolio of the other two. So we can draw a line from a portfolio of development finance and development assistance and get something which is striking a balance between financial sustainability and social impact. And indeed, many NGOs are imitating that within their own structures. So they have a fair trade business arm alongside their development assistance, and they manage the two together to try and exploit the synergies that come from that. Okay? So there's a lot of interesting things to say about social enterprise um, as an intermediate option between the other two. And the question is, how far is the PPF pushed upwards by those kinds of aid technologies rather than following the flat line of a straight portfolio mix? Okay. So lots more I'd like to say about that, but I'm going to get on to the case study or I'm going to run out of time. Okay, the case study. Uh, This is a case study, as I say, from Ethiopia, from Self-Help Africa. And, um, and I'm going to use it to explore a little bit the ideas I've been presenting so far in abstract. Um, this is based in the Didda Plateau, east of the Rift Valley, in a long-standing um, barley-growing area um, near Ethiopia's only and still government-owned malt barley factory. In 2012, the main uh, implementing donor, Self-Help Africa, signed an agreement with the regional government to promote barley production and marketing in three districts, with a population of about 130,000. 
Its immediate partners are two cooperative unions, and the project aims to assist 6,000 barley-growing um, uh, cooperative members. Hence, it broadly fits the donor-partner-end-user model, um, even if um, the speller in this case, um, <coughs> the spelling left something slightly to be uh, desired. <coughs> right. Um, Bali's Ethiopia's third main uh, crop and has been grown in the highlands for generations, both for sale and as a staple, and to brew the local beer. Um, in the last five years, um, demand has been boosted by a doubling in national consumption of industrialized beer in Ethiopia as it urbanizes rapidly. And this has attracted substantial foreign investment, French, Dutch, British, Chinese, into the brewing industry. Barley production has failed to keep up, and as a result, uh, nearly half of, of, of malt barley imports to Ethiopia um, come from abroad, um, 70,000 tonnes um, being needed annually. Bit of a lost opportunity, you might think. Um, okay, so what do the photos show? They show threshing barley um, in January this year um, in the project area. They show some of the barley being collected by an idia, which is an informal funeral association that farmers have to put some grain and money aside for funerals and ill health. We've got the malt barley factory down there on the left. <coughs> We've got Toshomi, the project manager, responsible for implementing this three-year project. Um, budget $300,000, I should have said. Uh, £300,000, sorry. Now on the left, we've got Alex Kasada, who is in fact the Self-Help Africa project, uh, country director for Uganda. And he's drinking some St. George beer, which is very nice. Uh, and is an interesting brand for an Ethiopian beer produced by a French company. <laughs> Here's a more complicated version of the value chain. Um, and um, I'm not going to talk you through all of it, um, but um, uh, <coughs> so we've still got our donor, Self-Help Africa, with its £300,000 over three years. We've got our cooperatives. There's a lot more I'd like to say about cooperatives in Ethiopia. Um, they've got a chequered history. During the military regime, the Derg, from 74 to 80, um, uh, 87, cooperatives were used as a means of coercing farmers. And they've got, as a result, a bit of a tainted, tainted brand. But they are nevertheless um, very, very widespread. There are 10,000, including rural SACOs in, rural, in Ethiopia, with 5 million members. Yeah. Um, so we're just uh, talking about a very small number of them here who are specialised in barley producing and seed multiplication co-ops. Yeah. And we've got the malt barley factory. The red arrows showing the movement of grain and turning it into beer. The blue arrows showing different kinds of financial transactions. Yeah. I've also shown on the government, very importantly, partially because the project hinges on getting hold of pre-basic seed to multiply up through the co-ops, and that's controlled by government, as is the seed industry, but also because, of course, the government's interested in tax revenue. Yeah? And so um, one of the interesting questions um, is how tax, trade, and exchange rate policy influences the relative competitiveness of importers and local producers, this being one potential source of risk that might deter private for-profit investors for getting into this market. Okay. So, sorry. 
How do we uh, assess the performance of this project? Well, financial sustainability is relatively straightforward because we can do it through the uh, accounts of the cooperatives. Social impact is more complicated. Um, there's a very nice project document which sets out a clear theory uh, or logic for the project, including risks and assumptions. Um, and in short, this develops the case for believing that improved seed supply through the project, um, supervised farm-based seed multiplication combined with technical advice and marketing, um, can raise malt barley yields from the current average of around three tonnes per hectare or 30 quintiles, um, can raise it by 85% in three years. A pretty dramatic target to set yourself. Yeah. And that's being monitored through robust indicators, yields, farmer participation, farm income. And we've got a baseline survey, which will be repeated, looking at sources and variation in farm income uh, sources across the um, a sample of the 6,000 farmers. And I was in um, Ethiopia uh, participating in that baseline not long ago, and a very rough calculation from the statistics we produced was that if we can achieve an 85% increase in maize barley, uh, in barley yields, malt barley yields, that would represent roughly £250 per household per year, or a £1.5 million increase in gross revenue of farmers. Remember that figure. Yeah? Finally, <clears throat> we may be monitoring the project uh, well, but of course, rainfall, changes in prices, there are lots of things which will change the, um, the, the trend in yield uh, and in income. So the question remains, how do we know what the project is doing to change our key monitoring indicators? Yeah? And that's what I'm going to get onto in a minute. Yeah? So, okay, let's test out the diagram. Yeah? Where does this project fit in our diagram in terms of the balance between social impact and financial sustainability that it's going for? Yeah? A couple of key figures I've given you. Project cost £300,000. Gross revenue up to £1.5 million. Yeah? So where does that put it? Yeah? <laughs> Surprise. Yeah? Um, Firstly, it suggests that my intuitive drawing the PPF relative to 100% budget was completely out, way out. Secondly, um, I'd actually chosen it because I thought it was an interesting example of an intermediate project somewhere down the middle under the diagram. Yeah. So it shows that even very, very rough rules of thumb can change the view that you have of an aid project, um, even having visited it twice. Yeah. Obviously, we need to be cautious about that. The project hasn't begun. I'm making that on the basis of projected yield increases that may not be realised. There are lots of risks. There are lots of other issues relating to the project. Gender, for example. The co-ops are male-dominated um, that we might want to explore in more depth as well. Okay, so I've got 15 minutes or so. I, um, I fear there may not be very much time for questions. Um, uh, in, but I do want to actually work out the implications of uh, what I've done so far. <clears throat> Firstly, while I'm not claiming um, that the malt barley project... Did you think you were going to come and hear about producing malt to grow to, for, for beer in Ethiopia? Is in any way representative 
of small-scale pharma NGO-sponsored linkage projects in Africa. I don't think it's untypical either. In fact, Farm Africa uh, have a almost well quite similar project uh, on the other side of the Rift Valley with Diageo, if I pronounce it correctly, producers of Guinness, big UK company, uh, and they're working directly with them to increase malt barley production as well. Uh, there's a Dutch NGO working with Heineken um, as well in the country. Uh, and there are many other examples. Uh, SHA is working with Coca-Cola and Pepsi in other parts of uh, Africa, producing um, uh, mango products in one and cashew in the other. And I'm told that that's fine, but you don't work with Coca-Cola and Pepsi in the same country. Um, So look out for SHA Coca-Cola Pepsi products in the supermarkets soon. Um, uh, I would also, Steve Wiggins is here, um, want to emphasise that the big opportunities, though, aren't in linking small farmers into export value chains, they're in serving that massively growing domestic market in Africa itself. That's where the real opportunities um, lie. Uh, another implication for NGOs of what I've said so far is that sometimes their um, niche lies more in their technical and broking capacity than in their access to finance. And that raises a very interesting political economy issue in Ethiopia. The government, for various reasons, which some of you will be familiar with, is very suspicious of NGOs after the 2005 elections, particularly foreign NGOs and particularly those that get involved in um, civic and political rights issues. Working in agriculture is relatively safe for an NGO, but part of the control regime is the 70-30 rule. And that means that any foreign income that an NGO gets into Ethiopia is audited and 70% must be audited as getting to end users. Let's contribute to what I've called social impact. And that's fine if you're doing development assistance, because you can pass on the money. But if you're doing difficult seed multiplication work, um, uh, like Self-Help Africa, and a lot of the money is going into paying staff to work within co-ops, that's very difficult. It's hugely tempting for Self-Help Africa to dilute its brand by slipping in a few development assistance projects to get around the 70-30 rule. It's the reality of, of working as an NGO in Ethiopia. third point about NGOs is I'm suggesting there's a lot that can be done here Um, working with government being um, legitimate with government but linking small farmers to massively growing domestic markets a bit more development finance a little bit less development assistance but is that what our NGO gurus one of whom was standing at this pedestal not that long ago um, would be arguing Um, I think they might think it's a slightly emasculated role for NGOs. Um, Maybe, but I think NGOs, like DFID, do need to keep close to the bed and butter food and livelihood concerns of poor people. And for all the rapid pace of growth uh, and of urbanisation in Africa, that means not neglecting agriculture for a long time to come. Second set of um, implications... For Ethiopia Watchers, and I'm very new to this club, it's not a country I've worked in um, for a long time, but um, let's understand it in context. Um, The Ethiopian context is a strong government managing very, very rapid urbanisation and growth, 
with South Korea and China as their role models. Um, the, the legacy of, 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 of Meles Zanawi lives on so far. Yeah? And that raises the agrarian question again. How do you manage the economics and politics of modernizing agriculture? Remember, 85% of people still depending on agriculture for their livelihood without undue income polarization and political instability. Land is state-owned in Ethiopia. Um, the average land ownership is one to two hectares. There's sharecropping. It's more unequal than that. Uh, but the key to this issue is government's grip on land and how quickly it feels able, and thanks to Tom Lavers for this, to relax that grip on land ownership. Relax it too fast or relax it rapidly, you'll get more differentiation of farmers, more agricultural growth, but you also get faster migration and more social um, inequality. Relax land too slowly, you'll get... Um, Slow food production, restricted livelihoods, but social stability. And that's a real knife edge. And I don't envy anybody having to make those policy decisions. <clears throat> but um, I do think it's over... And, you know, so what can NGOs, what can cooperatives do to help governments to manage that, that knife edge? I think it's too dogmatic um, to dismiss all efforts of co-ops, NGOs and aid agencies as romantic populism and... Um, peasant-loving nostalgia, um, such activities can make a difference to how many farmers survive, even thrive, rather than having to migrate or go under. And so while it may be true that the intermediate role of NGOs is marginal at the, political, at the, at the structural level, I think politically and rhetorically it's right in the centre of the debate. Okay. <clears throat> Lots more I could say about that. Let me move now to um, implications of what I'm saying for performance assessment. And um, Financial assessment is relatively the easier of the two, but I do think it helps to have big enough partners so that you can monitor accounts and financial flows reasonably safely. It helps to be a significant contributor to your partner so that your funds aren't insignificant. Social impact's more complicated. It helps to have a robust theory of change. Monitoring are key indicators matters, but keep them simple. Um, we've still got this problem, though. We may know what's changing. We know, may know whether it's consistent with what we thought we were trying to do as an NGO, but how can we attribute those changes to our own actions? And that takes us into a raging war in academia, um, uh, which was well um, uh, articulated um, in a talk here not long ago. And um, Duncan Green's um, Oxfam blog talks about it as the policy nerd wars or the policy wonk wars. Um, and I can't go into this in any depth, and I've tried to avoid too much theory in this talk. Um, but to pick up some phrases from Robert Chambers... This is a war between neo-Newtonians yeah, who um, would like us to be more mechanistic and quantitative in our aid performance assessment and adaptist pluralists who view um, performance assessment in a more eclectic, qualitative and mixed methods kind of way. And the debate is about whether results-based mechanistic neo-Newtonian performance assessment of aid is restricting the scope for messier but more innovative action 
Or is it that the aid agencies themselves are resisting stronger public accountability because they're trying to um, protect their own interests and weaknesses? And as usual, um, I I end up sitting on the fence um, and um, trying to look at the tensions between the principles underlying this argument. And it's what's led me to want to do more research into um, what we call good enough evaluation that provides robust enough evidence of what aid is doing and why at a reasonably flexible uh, 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 approach and in a cost-effective way. And that takes me on to the art project, which Jane mentioned right at the beginning. I haven't got time to say very much about this, but basically um, Self-Help Africa and Farm Africa have kindly agreed to work with us on uh, an ESRC um, DFID-funded project. They've got good monitoring systems in place, but we're going to try and design together an impact assessment protocol for qualitative impact assessment to build on their monitoring, um, and we're then going to test it or pilot it in four of their projects, including the first project, the Malt Barley project that we've looked at here, another one in northern Ethiopia and two in Malawi. And they've teamed up with a a group of ex-Save the Children uh, staff who have a small NGO specialised in income measurement in rural Africa. And you'll see from all of that that um, <clears throat> in these days of impact and ref, uh, etc., in universities, we take our branding very seriously. Yeah. Thank you, Fiona. Um, okay, so let me get back to the core argument and try and bring everything together um, in the last few minutes. <clears throat> okay, so I said that negatively, branding of aid can be viewed as evidence of its increasing subordination to commercial and neoliberal values. Positively, it can be seen as playing a role in helping the public, including end users of the aid, to identify and differentiate between aid providers within a more adaptive and plural aid system. One indicator of the force of these arguments is the extent to which aid brand marketing and perception is based on evidence, and how much on more emotional and knee-jerk reactions, something my dry economists refer to as warm glow, and conscience-cleansing acts of given, rather, or indeed reliance on ideological prejudices and preferences, rather than on evidence. A prior condition for better evidence, I've argued, is that we differentiate more clearly between different kinds of aid. Being more precise about the meaning, though, does not necessarily mean being more fetishistic about measurement. This is where branding comes in again. The process by which we assess the quality of a brand is complex and involves the synthesis of lots of evidence, not just the brand owner's advertising, but third-party comments, reports, our own direct experience of the product, all interacting with our personality, values, and social networks. Likewise with aid. I think we do need more and better evidence about variation in its social impact and its sustainability, but it would simply be too expensive, you might say madness, to suggest that this necessarily entails measuring impact and sustainability as precisely as we can all the time. We've got a rich array of qualitative, quantitative and mixed methods to draw upon and should make use of that full range. And as donors, partners, end users, students, lobbyists, bloggers, managers, consultants, journalists and academics, we can all and should be more inquisitive, discriminating reflexive and open about what lies behind the aid brand. So, 
In this lecture, I've presented quite a complicated argument. I didn't quite get it all in, I'm afraid. Um, uh, and the argument has been linking the idea of aid branding to the deeper epistemological problem of how we know what forms of aid are working and why. To add to the complexity, I've linked the argument to the specifics of NGO aid for agricultural development in Ethiopia. I've also hinted, slightly more contentiously, that branding in this area may be associated with a deeper trend towards commercialization of aid, with more emphasis on business-oriented development finance than needs-based development assistance than in the past. <clears throat> and I think the aid industry is ahead of the public on that. There's a lot more of it happening than people realise. Okay, so let me just finish by um, stripping away this context and restating the argument in a purer form. Firstly, AIDS become more complex and we struggle to keep up. I think having in our minds this distinction between development assistance and development finance can help. That means thinking more clearly about social impact and financial sustainability. One disincentive to this, I've suggested, is that donors may find it easier to sell aid in a sort of warm glow, mishy-mashy mix to the public by conflating them. Reliably assessing social impact is also difficult. But good enough impact investment evaluation does not necessarily require precise measurement all the time. And I do think it can help to improve the way the reputation of different brands of aid are established. Okay, thank you very much. <clears throat>